So, Berto, I'm guessing you're not the sort of person who experiences this, but do you have any social anxiety, like when you go to a party and you enter that zone where you just have to riff, you know, socially? There's there's no script to it. There's no protocol. You just have to react as things happen. Do you, do you ever get nervous or worried or anxious about situations like that? Man, why are you putting me on the spot like this? <laughs> um, okay, so actually... It's funny you should mention that because although I am, you know, an extrovert, quote unquote, um, there are also aspects of my personality. You know, I don't think people are so cut and drive like, oh, that person is this, that person is that. So in my case, I definitely am an extrovert in many circumstances, but I also have times where I want to just be by myself and like not talk to anyone. And then the other aspect is that sometimes when I arrive at a place, depending on a lot of factors about what's going on in my life at the time, how I feel about my, you know, say job or family or whatever else, that will influence how ready I am to be the good old extroverted Berto. So sometimes I will have to force it and then it'll kind of happen. Sometimes I don't have to force it at all. And sometimes I actually don't end up being extroverted and I just kind of... And people sometimes go like, you're so quiet today, Berto. What's going on? Yeah. And then I'll, then I'll have to pretend a little bit like, ah, oh, you know, just the, the soccer game, Sonics. <laughs> and, and then from there, I might get a little more in the mood. Yeah. Well, today I want to talk about social anxiety, primarily because a patron asked us to talk about it. But before we do that, let's introduce the show. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a professor and a therapist. My name is Humberto Casaña. I drive self-driving cars. This is... <laughs> That's the funniest one you've ever said. What do you mean? You're laughing at my job? That's not nice. That's rude. That's rude. <laughs> um, this is an email... How rude. This is an email from patron Jennifer. She says, Dear Dr. Honda, I've been listening on and off for about two years now, but I really became a regular listener earlier this year. Strangely enough, the podcasts that won me over were your many episodes on Star Wars. (laughs) I listened to you and Umbeto discuss the new movie while driving, and at some points I was even cheering out loud in agreement. I listened to every other podcast you've done about (laughs) Star Wars, which is several. Yeah. They lasted me the entire length of Florida. Wow. I've always been, I'm, I'm thinking excluding the keys. It's just a guess. But yeah. anyway, I've always been a Star Wars fan, but my love for The Force Awakens outdoes everything else. Wow. I'm a 23 year old woman and a feminist, and seeking a, and, and, sorry, and seeing a female Jedi to be kicking ass felt like a fulfillment of childhood longings. I watched the movie with my dad and brother, both conservative white males, from Florida, I'm guessing, (laughs) who enjoyed it enough but didn't understand my utter joy and ecstasy. They also made comments about Star Wars becoming too politically correct, which really blows my mind. (laughs) The new trio, the white female, the black male, and the Guatemalan-Cuban-Miamian male, Playing out a continuation of the stories that mean so much to us as a culture as a culture feels both natural to me and incredibly empowering. It was extremely satisfying to see that you and Umberto, as men, appreciate the same elements that I did in the movie. Thoughts, bro? Well, first of all, I love how she pronounces my name. 
<laughs> and with her voice, it sounds really nice. Umbeto. 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 <laughs> well, actually, earlier today, I resolved to pronounce your name properly as often as I could. Oh, wow. Yeah. That just happened today? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. After 10 years of knowing <laughs> it's you. It's time. It's, it's time. Yeah. Well, okay. So um, this, is, oh, this is a great email, man. First of all, we also, I believe, both of us enjoyed the movie extremely a lot and also not in small part because of choices like putting a strong female lead and in, 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 in control and things like that. Uh, now, to be fair, the original Star Wars movie had plenty of diversity. They had a uh, brunette white male, a blonde white male, and an older white-haired white male. So, you know. Um, but yeah, I could totally understand how when you're, when you're in a, especially maybe in, maybe I'm being unfair to the state of Florida, but I could see how maybe you're, uh, in surroundings where you yourself are not only excited about the movie, but also about those choices they made culturally. And if those around you might not appreciate those choices, it could be a little frustrating. Uh, I did appreciate those choices. I thought not only it wasn't self-serving or, or just like, well, we should throw in a female in there. They picked like an amazing, badass character and actress and script for her. So it wasn't at all like, you know, well, let's just make it a female. Like it, it was well thought out from beginning to end. Um, and then also the other act, like there were no actors were like slouches, you know. Everyone was great, great choices. Um yeah, I consider it to be a massive example of white privilege when, and specifically white male privilege when this happens. When, when I go and see the original Star Wars, I don't go, oh, they're just putting in a white person because blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I just enjoy the movie. Right. I'm just like, Luke Skywalker, he's, you know, he's, I'm, I'm half Japanese. He's all white. I'm looking at him. I'm identifying with him. I'm enjoying right. it. When there's a woman on screen, I, I, she's not exactly like me demographically, but I look at her and I identify with her and I enjoy it. Uh, Finn, he's a black man. I, he, he's you know different ethnicity than me, but I identify with him. I enjoy right. it. But somehow, when whenever you have other than white males as leads, it's always oh, it's politically correct, right, right, right. And and it's just because they can't identify. It's like they have this offense to it or something. Yeah. And I don't take offense when there's a white male on the screen. I just, <laughs> I just would appreciate it when, when they diversify this sort of thing. The other thing is, is if you want to create a character that feels like an underdog, mm -hmm. then a, a, a slight woman is a very good choice. Yeah, of course. In our, in our culture, absolutely. Right. It, it reflects, you know, these movies reflect our culture. And if you want an underdog, a, you know, a petite woman in the outer rim of the galaxy with no money feels more vulnerable. And right. there's a greater sense of the hero's journey when she rises. That's right. So it's in the same vein, but even, you know, even more so, I guess. But imagine if Luke's character had been some badass ranger in that. It sure, in Tatooine, but he's like self-sufficient 30-year-old. It's like, okay, I guess he became slightly tougher. Right. But you know, instead he went from like this whiny kid to like, oh, okay, he's fighting Darth Vader, you know? Yeah. And, and now it's like, yeah, she's by herself. She, by all means, you know, using your, your eyes at first, you're like, well, she seems vulnerable. And then it turns out she's a great fighter, but you don't know that. You don't know that she's got the force and all these things. And I, I agree with you. It sets it up 
for the viewer as more relatable because you're like, yeah, imagine being that vulnerable and having to, or, or at least being uh, in a situation where you could be vulnerable and having to overcome the odds. And right. And, you know, maybe I'm giving Hollywood too much credit, but I don't think Abrams and his team are that cynical that they would just say, okay, all of our three leads need to be not white males. I, I'm guessing that they, 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 you know, obviously they didn't, they weren't colorblind as they were going into it. But my guess is, is they probably left their options open as yeah. they were casting, and they, especially when it came to Poe Dameron's character, yeah. Yeah. because his character is a little secondary and could have been, could have been. Well, and and I. I always hate to point this out, but the fact is they classify Latinos as white in the ethnicity charts, right? So technically he's white. <laughs> right. So, uh, which I always find funny because when I fill out those questionnaires, unless they explicitly call out the separate section of, oh, and are you Hispanic? Right. So it's like, are you white? Yeah, I'm like, I guess that's the, or Caucasian is like, am I might. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I descend from the Spaniards, so I guess so, you know. But anyways, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I wouldn't put it past a lot of studio pressure and all other things to say, well, make sure you have enough variety and diversity in the cast. But I don't mind, like, I, I don't see anything wrong with that. Right. Because it's like, that will appeal broader anyways. Like, right. that's just silly. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And if you're a white male and you want other white males to watch on TV... All you got to do is blindly pick a, a random cinema showing and 95, 99% of the time you will be satisfied. Right. And my dog is now sniffing your crotch. Yeah. We used to have cats. Now we have dogs. Uh, <laughs> we have cats and dogs now. Okay. So uh, she goes on. Now, she, now here's her thoughts about social anxiety. I recently became a patron and I was glad that I did. I've enjoyed catching up on the patron-exclusive episodes and have found them very informative. I just listened to your episode about anxiety and plan on applying some of your tips in my own life. I was hoping that at some point you would also discuss social anxiety specifically. From my research, I know that my social anxiety is actually quite mild, so I can only imagine how damaging it is for other people who have it worse than I do. My social anxiety embodies itself as a sense of great unease regarding any situation that requires spontaneous interpersonal contact. I became especially anxious arriving and leaving events. When alone or with the people I'm closest to, when I'm alone, not at parties and this kind of thing, I'm lively to the point of hyper, talkative, opinionated, sometimes sarcastic and empathetic. But when I'm at a party, I am hyper aware of my body and my physical presence. The most disconcerting symptom of my anxiety is my mental blankness. I can't think of conversation topics. And if asked about a particular issue, I feel incapable of, of forming an opinion. My self-esteem drops, and I usually feel worse about myself when I leave. My anxiety is almost entirely focused on social interactions. I don't have general anxiety. In high school and in college, I was always oddly calm about tests and projects and essays and would produce extreme, which would produce extreme anxiety in other people. Even more strangely, I don't dislike public speaking. I get butterflies, but they feel manageable. The anxiety always comes from the unknown and unscripted nature of some interactions, and I think it doesn't help to repeat, and it doesn't help to repeat to myself, you're safe 
and it doesn't matter what they think. You know how you're supposed to say right, to yourself, right, you're right. okay, don't... It, she's saying, it doesn't help me. It bothers me when people reassure me that everyone experiences social anxiety sometimes. I know they mean well, but my anxiety feels fundamentally different than what the average person faces. My anxiety is preventing me from forming relationships. I've never dated. I've never been in a romantic relationship. I hardly ever notice when men are flirting with me, and when I do, I interpret it as mocking. I just wanted to share my experience with social anxiety and recommend it as a potential topic. I think it would be help. It would it could help a lot of people who would likely who are struggling with it. Regardless, I look forward to your future podcasts. Feel free to geek out about Star Wars as much as you like. You'll always have at least one listener geeking out with you. What do you what what thoughts do you have about her social anxiety, Bruno? Well, first of all, everyone experiences social anxiety, <laughs> and all you got to do is just tell yourself everything's fine. <laughs> everything's fine. Um, no, okay. So uh, at the beginning, I was saying that you know I do experience. Uh, it, it does sound to me like. That is a more, much more pronounced situation that she's describing. Um, there are some things I can definitely relate to. For example, I, I think there are certain kinds of get-togethers that specifically unnerve me and get me like wanting the whole time I'm there. I'm like, I just want to leave. I just want to leave. I just want to leave. And it's so it is a kind of anxiety. Um, and it usually has to do with when I feel like I need to pretend, like I need to pretend to be things I'm not. So if it's if it's a grouping of people whose common interests or traits really are not something that I'm interested in, it's always anxious for me because I'm like, Ugh, I, I just want to talk about Star Wars or ask them if they read something about, you know, like the latest in in chaos theory or some stupid geeky thing or something, right? Jeez, you must often feel out of place. <laughs> but instead, it's like, oh, they're talking about the Seahawks or they're talking about um, some some reality show I don't watch or you know something like that. But that's even that's even too micro. What I uh, a lot of times like with work functions, you know. I can experience this because I'm like, I really only have this work contact well, with these folk. It, it, correct me if I'm wrong. I experience this, I think, too, when I'm in situations where I don't really have a foundation socially mm-hmm. with these people. Like if you're new at a job and everyone else kind of knows each other at least. Right. And you're the new guy. And right. you really only barely know a few people. When you sit down... It's just hard to get things going. And, and actually, I've experimented with this on, on human beings. <laughs> when I've entered into new social groups, like I'm the new guy, right? I gauge their response to me because I'm the same guy and I'll, try to, I'll crack a joke or something and no one will laugh. But then fast forward five years and I crack like a joke that's 10% as funny and everyone laughs. <laughs> and I was, and I, I, I've, I've done this multiple times because... It's not necessarily you. It's not necessarily you, the one that's like screwing up the situation. I see. It can be a group's exclusivity, and they don't know you yet, and so they're just re- they're they're all subconsciously or even consciously reacting to you as an outsider, right? And and don't know how to react to you. The the way as a as a professor, I went into the same thing at, at the beginning of every quarter, in the very first class meeting. I'll crack a, a couple jokes and I'll get just crickets. 
But by the end of the quarter, again, I'll crack a, a much lesser funny joke and everyone's laughing because there's this, there's this systemic vibe that needs mm. to build over time. And when you're the new person, then you know, you're just going to get uh, ousted. Is that what you're talking about? That is definitely part of it for sure. And then there's other variants of it, which are the, uh, maybe it's already a group that's established itself for a while, but you continue to be an outsider for any number of reasons. For example, your interests really don't match, but you happen to be grouped for reasons that are not, but you know, I, I don't own. think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Berto, but even if you were with some, a group of people that had nothing in common with you, but you but you knew them well enough you could have a good time with them well i can like i said i can certainly a i can certainly force myself into a situation where i'm i'm certainly faking it well right but sometimes i don't have to fake it and and maybe often i don't have to fake it because if i'm if i'm having a good day or if i have been having a good week i'm just going to be in a good mood right and i'm going to be that guy right because everyone has certain things in common yes whether it's you know seahawks or not yes you have things in common like making jokes or i don't know there's just certain things and just to back up i want to say that i don't gauge everything based on like people laughing at my jokes <laughs> <laughs> that's just a, a, a an empirically noticeable difference <laughs> interesting as 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 i move my way into groups it, that's only like one percent of the total social pie, you know what I mean? But see, I've noticed when I first meet a group, I'll crack a joke and everyone laughs. And then ten years later, I'm cracking the same joke and no one's laughing. Anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say to patron Jennifer, perhaps more than any other disorder, anxiety has the most variety. Some people are terrified of spiders, while some are not. Some people are paralyzed by needles when they go to the doctor, while others are not. And some people become extremely anxious in unscripted social interactions, like you, patron Jennifer. It's actually a common phrase that people will say. It's like, and so when, when I'm in a social interaction and there's no script, there's no protocol, there's no guide, then I freak out. That's why things like Dungeons and Dragons or Star Wars, well, like conventions and stuff, will actually be a bastion for a lot of these people because there is kind of a protocol. There is a script to it, you know? In my opinion, and according to some research, people with this specific issue have likely experienced some sort of social trauma in their past, some significant, usually ongoing trauma and fear while in a social situation or while interacting with their family members. You know, when you're a child and you're interacting with your family members, that's a social interaction, you know. Then after the ongoing trauma and the person grows up, each time they uh, are in a social situation that's like unscripted, they were traumatized once again by these feelings of terror as their trauma gets triggered, you know. So they're, they're a child and, and they're, they're made to feel afraid when they socialize either with their family or with other people. Huh. And it creates a pathway in the brain that makes them, uh, when triggered by that stimulus, they, they kind of freak out. And when you're freaking out, that's counter to being able to talk, right? That's counter to being able to be right. free flowing with your communication. And so it's this feedback loop. The more freaked out you get, the worse your social interactions. The more freak out, freaked out you get, the <laughs> worse your... And then this just goes on and on and on through someone's life. 
And by the time you know you're at, as an adult and you actually can control your environment, you just retreat entirely from social interactions. And the few times that you dip your toe in the water, it's a horrible experience, and you just mm-hmm. think, uh, "Never mind, I'm I'm going home." Right. And then by the time you're 45, you have no social skills and no self-esteem, and you think you're a loser. But it all began when you were a child growing up in an environment that didn't make you feel safe. I see. And it's, and it's not a cognitive thing. It's not like you just have to, like you were saying before, Patron Jennifer, it doesn't help to tell myself everything's fine because there are certain traumatic pathways in the brain that cannot be counterbalanced by just thinking opposite thoughts. There, it's, it's too powerful of a physical reaction. And I think that's what Patron Jennifer is describing is, She's, she's describing she's blank. She's actually in a different – her brain is in a different state. She's saying when she's actually in a safe situation with her family or with her close friends, she's free to act. And actually, I've, she describes something that I've seen before. When people have this condition and then they come home and they're hanging out with their spouse or their best friend or their sister uh-huh. son, all of their energy comes flowing out and they just act like crazy, not crazy in a bad way, but hyperactive, just talkative, talkative and like jumping and like just flailing around with with social energy because they've been pent up all week long. And okay. So so that happens to me, for example, in a, in a maybe smaller way. Um, There are certain friends that are close to me like yourself and, couple of others that when I'm around them, I feel like, okay, now I can kind of cut loose. I can be goofy or I can say whatever. And I do get hyper. And I, and I tend to talk a lot because I get, I think I get uh, a chance to be quote unquote, my uninhibited self. Whereas all week long I have to, you know, I'm just driving this self-driving car and people are like, you know, passengers and stuff. So I got to pretend to be someone I'm not right. Um, and, and I think if I if I think back to when I was a child, something that would happen is I have two halves to my family, my dad's half as normal and my mom's half. But because they were divorced when I was little, those two halves became very separate. And to top that, um, my mom's half of the family has a lot of coastal influences uh, because they they come from the coast of Colombia and the culture is very different. It's pronounced Colombia. Colombia. The culture is very different. It's very uh, direct, very... Uh, um, like New York City? Yeah, exactly. And very... Yeah, very harsh, very direct, but also very ebullient, you know, big, big parties with lots of noise and everyone's there. Rio de Janeiro. And, yeah. And then my my dad's side of the family was a lot more reserved city folk the dog is back to to sniff your crotch again (laughs) lots of passive aggression you know lots of we don't really talk about our problems that kind of thing and you certainly don't confront someone directly with what you don't like about them or whatever when i would go over to my grandma's house on my mom's side she would usually or sometimes she would have these big parties with all her friends and stuff like that and I would feel so uneasy at those parties. And I was a kid. And I remember arriving there and it's like there's all these adults and they're all being loud and they're different types of accents and different kind of culture that I'm used to at home. And 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 they point at me and it's like, oh, is this your grandchild? Oh, well, what's wrong with his hair? Or stuff like that, you know. And so I would always feel like everyone is staring at me. <laughs> and 
and I am so awkward and like, should I stand this way? Maybe I should stand like this. Oh, I shouldn't sit like this. Like, it's just, it was a constant anxiety of right. that. Right. So imagine that times a hundred. Right. Rinse and repeat. Right. With no bastion for you. Right. You could imagine that your brain would develop a pathway that when you're an adult and you enter any kind of social unknown situation, it would throw you into a panic. Right. To the point where your brain would go blank and uh, mildly dissociate as a way of trying to escape from that pain. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, what's happening for patron Jennifer. And so the cure is not to reassure yourself that everything's okay. The cure is not to normalize it and say, well, you know, everyone's shy. The cure is to habituate. This is a behavioral technique, a behavioral phenomenon that is proven time and time again on all sorts of animals, including humans, in that you need to habituate your brain to the stimulus. You need to habituate yourself to social situations. And the way that you do that is by slowly exposing yourself to the stimulus without having it be overly uh, uh, anxiety-provoking. And you have to sustain that. So, for instance... You, if you went on a schedule of okay, I'm gonna go to a it just yeah, I can't think of a of a realistic schedule, but let me just hypothetically, you know, you go to a party with two people that you don't know very well, mm-hmm. and you only go for a half an hour and you go home. Mm-hmm. The next time it's four people and you stay for forty five minutes, and the next time you know each time it you're 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 starting with something that isn't comfortable but isn't overwhelmingly uncomfortable. And you just, but you need to do each step, each gradation until you are, for the most part, on the scale from one to 10 of distress, the highest you are is a two. So you have to uh, wait until that stage, your brain is habituated to it. I see. Then you go to the next phase. It's the same if you're phobic of spiders or if you're phobic of driving in cars or of drowning. You expose yourself gradually over time habituate the brain and eventually you will be able to walk into a party and at the most you'll feel the normal sense of a slight worry about making a fool of yourself right so So, that's interesting yeah so uh, one question with that it does it help or hurt to have it be on a regular schedule like every friday is my going out to socialize night it doesn't help in that way it just it if you go slower, it will decelerate the habituation. So you could do it every day. It's just hard with yeah. a situation like this to do it every day. And I was thinking, like, if you did set a day, would you start fearing that day? Well, like, well the, Tuesdays the, is my well. Day. You're not gonna. The whole thing is when it comes to habituation, no pain, no gain. If you if you expose yourself to a situation and on the scale from one to ten you're just a one, then it's not a sufficient sufficient situation to habituate you. I see. It has to provoke on the scale from one to ten like a four, and you don't want to be more from, than a four because that's that's re-traumatizing yourself mm-hmm. and, and actually putting you further back. It's just oh. damaging. But you have to bring yourself up to a four, and 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 then at the end of the half an hour you're a one. And then you do it again, and oh, it's a four again, but then you're down to a one. And then you do it again, and oh, you're only a two. 
and then you do it another time and you're still a one. You got then you go up a step and you just and you just keep going up until your brain is fully habituated to the situation. But, you know, and in terms of the schedule and how fast and how to strategize, that is a very difficult thing and I find that most people either don't know the details on how to figure that out or they don't push themselves enough or I, I I find that in a nutshell I find that most people need a therapist that specializes right. in this sort of thing to help guide them uh-huh. on how on how fast they go. A lot of people go too fast, honestly. Oh, I, I have a lot of clients that will just they'll just go, I, I'm I wanna be done with this shit. Yeah. And and they'll just go for it and I'm always like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like if you wanna make this worse for you, then yeah, let's 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 <laughs> let's sprint and like break your Achilles tendon. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or let's build up, you know, let's stretch first and let's take it slow. <laughs> For some people, especially people that have had really significant childhood traumas, it takes years. And and I'm not just saying that as a... I'm saying on average, it takes years for some people. Whereas for simple, you know, simple phobias like what patron Jennifer might be talking about, it could take three months, six months. Anyway. Interesting. All right. Well, that does it for that episode. If you haven't already, please become a patron of the podcast. Why should people become patrons of the podcast, Bruno? Well, for one thing, they get access to exclusive episodes with really cool extra content. That's right. It's also just awesome to feel like you're contributing to the podcast community. And we are part of that community. Yeah. Well, that does it for this episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because... You deserve it. <laughs>